Thank you everyone for joining us for this uh, Transform Finance Investor Network webinar today. My name is Andrea Armeni and I will be joined today by Nathan Schneider and uh, by Jason Wiener to talk about democratized tech and distributed ownership as an exit strategy. We'll be covering, as you will see, some of the topics that we've been uh, um, that we've been looking at uh, for, the, for the last while in a few different uh, uh, incarnations. First, I wanted to give you a very quick um, couple of uh, Investor Network member updates uh, on our part as Transform Finance. Yesterday, we released the briefing, the investor briefing that we've discussed with you previously on uh, renewable energy and community engagement looking at uh, the investor role in renewable energy projects and ensuring that communities benefit from those, uh, from those projects and also how to avoid uh, the risks that come with, um, um, with land disputes, human rights violations and the like. If you're interested in that, you will find it on our website at transformfinance.org under investor resources and I encourage you to take a look at it. If you're interested in uh, the intersection of renewable energy and human rights, and feel free to get back to us with, uh, with comments on that. Definitely a very salient topic right now. And uh, uh, then I wanted to turn it over to Bruce Campbell, our member from Blue Dot Advocates for a couple of interesting updates on his end. Thanks for joining us, Bruce. Andrea? Oh, now I've lost. Hello? Yes, we can hear you, Bruce. Hi. Okay, great. Hey, thank you. Hi, everyone. So, uh, two updates, and actually both are uh, relevant to uh, our friend Jason, who's joining us, so I think it's appropriate to be doing them at this session. One is that um, just, I think as some of you know, we've talked about this before in this forum, but our law firm, along with others, including now Jason, have been working on this project called the Impact Terms Project, and this is a project which catalogs um, term sheet language and, and structures related to direct impact investments, and it includes sample term sheets both related to different financial structures that we see people using in impact investments as well as mission or impact-related terms, and um, Jason is one of our most recent collaborators who's uh, helping us to develop some content related to investing in cooperatives. And the um, update there, we're in the, we're in the process of continuing to raise funding to, to be able to further improve the website as well as hire someone who would be a, a full-time resource to curate the site. And um, we're also continuing, uh, while we're in the process of, of finding that additional support, we are continuing to update the con content. And one request there would be if people go on the site, it's impactterms.org, two T's, and there is a comment feature where it's possible for anyone to add a comment to the site. I think so far I'm the only one who has commented on the site. And uh, but would appreciate other, if others could sort of join in in that process. And it's, it's just a way for people to identify their own or share their own experiences with, with the content on the site. And the other update, again, um, 
which Jason is helping us with, our, our law firm is in the process of reorganizing as both a workers cooperative and benefit corporation. Colorado, I think maybe the only state uh, in the country where is actually to both have this statutory form of a benefit corporation and a workers cooperative. So we are in the process of, of doing that again with, um, with Jason's help. So that's it for me. Thanks. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Bruce. And um, if people want to get in touch with you on either of those topics, how can they reach you? It's bruce at bluedotlaw.com. Great. Fantastic. Thank you. So let's turn now to the meat of this uh, of today's webinar that I see is really sitting at the convergence of three of the topics that we've been uh, covering for a while now. One is the issue of uh, alternative deal structures and exits, looking at uh, mission preservation as well as a better alignment of the incentives for all the stakeholders. Uh, platform value extraction, which we looked at recently in the case of um, uh, the Josephine webinar, uh, probably a couple of months ago or so, looking at where the value is accrued from platforms, um, from tech platforms in that case, and um, whether they are serving a role mainly of uh, charging um, uh, rent seeking, really, and, uh, you know, sort of uh, getting a payment every time that they uh, uh, that somebody goes through that platform rather than adding continued value there. And the third is this idea of distributed ownership and how we can create a little bit more of uh, um, opportunities to, to asset build. So going through them in, uh, in turn with respect to the alternative deal structures and exits, we're looking for both ways to fund ex-ante uh, projects and enterprises in, uh, in ways that are more aligned and as we'll be uh, exploring mainly today with, uh, with Nathan and with Jason, how you can have this uh, mission-aligned exits even where the original structure was perhaps conventional, but is the exit that is going to be an alternative structure. And lastly, this idea of, um, as we always talk about aligning the incentives for everybody, you know, being mindful also of the investor needs, uh, in particular around liquidity, and how this liquidity can be obtained without um, uh, without violating mission preservation. So that part fits within the alternative deal structure work. Secondly, we have been talking about this uh, role that platforms are playing increasingly and how that fits very much in uh, real world concerns about um, access to information, the control and the flow of um, uh, of, of a lot of the, of the algorithms that affect our daily life, who gets to benefit from those platforms, right? Are they, uh, are they extracting or are they creating value? And uh, specifically with, um, with respect to the investor context, what are the consequences for these platforms of having the expectations of investor return, especially at the venture capital level and the private equity level, um, being at the core of the decisions about how the algorithm works? So is it, uh, is it really the, the optimal outcome when uh, algorithmic decisions are being made based on investor expectations rather than the service that is being provided? And you can think of that in terms of, say, a platform such as uh, Twitter or Facebook maximizing for um, ad revenue rather than maximizing for levels of engagement. 
Um, lastly, on the piece of distributed ownership, uh, I think that uh, platform platform co-ops are really an additional tool that we have for creating more models that can lead to shared asset building. And um, conversely, they can also be a, an additional tool in the universe of cooperative um, distributed ownership besides the, uh, the worker co-ops that we've covered a couple of times before. Um, last thing that I will mention um, is the um, issue around Juno. I don't know if many of you are familiar with uh, Juno. It was touted for quite a while as his anti-Uber startup, in part because it had created a restricted stock unit program for its drivers uh, at some point last year. Uh, and in the context of um, its uh, acquisition by Get, that I believe was announced yesterday for $200 million, uh, Juno recanted on that offer to the drivers. So that was one instance where it had been praised by a lot of the folks that uh, seem to think that um, the type of um, ride-hailing platform uh, such as Uber uh, that can be problematic in many ways could be made less problematic by having the drivers sharing the upside of the, of the platform. And that um, apparently has been taken away. And again, part of that fits into the context of how these entities are being structured in the first place. Um, Jason was mentioning to me um, earlier the fact that Kickstarter has now uh, filed to be a Delaware Public Benefit Corporation, which you can think of in some ways as a poison pill almost uh, to ensure that the, the mission that is deeply at the core of um, Kickstarter would be um, would be preserved in the case of a potential takeover or a potential acquisition of, uh, of Kickstarter. So how does this all fit in? It touches really on all three of the transformative finance principles, the idea of deep community engagement in design, governance, and ownership, the non-extractiveness of the value that is being created, and the fair allocation of the risks and the returns among the shareholders. And I will turn it over now to Jason and to Nathan to see how we can take these uh, very high-level principles and land them into very concrete structures that um, that investors can uh, take advantage of in order to foster these um, uh, these principles. Jason, thank you very much for joining us. I'm delighted to have you with us. Well, Nathan actually will go first. Sorry. Okay. Well, I'll I'll just get us started. Uh... Uh, really briefly, and, and thank uh, uh, thank you all for joining us. Thank you for Andrea for um, for uh, your your welcome and and your support in this. Um, what we want to share with you today is is uh, a, a set of ideas that we've been working on uh, uh, that are designed to try to uh, connect uh, cooperative business models, in some cases cooperative capital sources, uh, with some of the existing uh, uh, tech. Uh, and startup ecosystem. Uh, so, you know, in the in the development of uh, conversations around platform cooperativism, uh, there have been a lot of people drawn in by the um, by the idea by the, by the cooperative ideas. But we're trying to figure out how to bring cooperative models uh, to places where they're not uh, currently on offer, and to give uh, founders and investors uh, a wider range of options uh, that, in turn, can lead to uh, better social. Uh, outcomes for the um, for the tech economy, and so this this presentation is really just uh, an attempt uh, to to uh, share with you all some of the things that we're thinking about, and to learn from you all about 
uh, what kind of uh, ideas these in turn uh, raise for you. And, um, and we're really looking forward to your feedback because this is a work in progress and, and um, uh, we're still very much developing it. Um, uh, who are we anyway? Uh, I'll let Jason uh, introduce himself. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jason Weiner. I'm an attorney working at the intersection of social enterprise, distributed ownership, and alternative democratized finance. I run a boutique law practice in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, I'm also the co-founder of a regional cooperative development effort uh, with another co-op lawyer here in the Colorado area. I've been practicing uh, with cooperatives uh, for about eight years. I was in-house at a worker-owned cooperative uh, here in Boulder, and I work at the intersection of a lot of these issues, and I'm excited to be here today to share some of our thinking and engage with you in a strategic effort to mainstream some of the more esoteric concepts that, um, that, that, that have been talked about before and try to land them in, in practical models and action steps. Great, thank you. And, and um, I've, for, for about two years, I'm Nathan Schneider. For about two years, I've been a scholar in residence of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. And one of the things that um, really made me thrilled to arrive here uh, uh, to move out here from uh, New York where I was before was uh, was meeting Jason and and finding uh, that that Boulder was home to uh, one of the most innovative uh, uh, co-op lawyers around right now and and so um, this this presentation is a result of the conversations and collaborations that um, we've been developing since then um, uh, I'm a really a journalist by by training and and by trade and and um, uh, and, and that work led me into uh, the development of this uh, movement of uh, platform cooperativism. I was a co-organizer with Trevor Schultz of the New School in New York of the original uh, platform cooperativism conference in, in uh, New York City, and uh, that was in 2015. We had another one last year, and we're now organizing uh, the third for this November, uh, also at the New School. Uh, we also put out a... a a collective manifesto that we co-edited called Ours to Hack and to Own that uh, was kind of a reflection of the first conference. And and um, uh, and I'm also, uh, uh, I've developed uh, the Internet of Ownership uh, directory of the platform cooperative uh, ecosystem. Uh, I, I might uh, continue with a, a few words about what platform cooperativism is. Um, uh, in a way, it's sort of what it sounds like. It's smushing together uh, the platform economy, an economy of online platforms that are mainly producing value by connecting people uh, uh, and by, uh, by uh, unlocking the value that those connections uh, provide. Uh, and and the, the old cooperative uh, uh, legacy, democratic businesses that are owned and governed by the people uh, that, are, um, that are most dependent on them. And uh, in the online economy, this can take many forms. Uh, it can take forms like Stocks United, which we'll talk about a bit later, a stock photo cooperative uh, owned uh, by its, largely by its photographers, but also its employees and others, uh, freelancer cooperatives like Loconomics. Um, uh, and uh, so we've got a whole family of startups uh, underway around the world, and then also uh, we're talking about some uh, uh, big ideas about conversions. Uh, we currently have a, 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 um, 
uh, a shareholder proposal uh, in for this month's or next month's uh, uh, shareholder meeting uh, at Twitter uh, to explore options for uh, for conversion. Uh, so, um, so the conversation that we're having today uh, is, I think, going to be mainly focused on that on that question of startups. Um, but we also think that there's relevance here for um, the future of some of the big uh, uh, established platforms that uh, uh, that many of us uh, uh, depend on so much. So I'll, uh, uh, Jason can tell us a bit more. Oh, oh no, I'll uh, say a few things about what the um, you know how we articulate the problem. Uh, mainly, uh, it is that the internet economy needs better options, and and that's all players in the economy, the users, the investors, the entrepreneurs. I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to successful founders who kind of quietly tell me, uh, uh, even though their, their companies have done really well, that they wish they had better options when they were getting going, you know, that they didn't realize how much uh, the, the current uh, investment offerings uh, tend to uh, uh, force them into situations that they wish uh, they didn't have to go into. Uh, uh, it's also resulted in a, in, a, in a situation where the dominant platforms are built on surveillance and monopoly, where the, the interests of investors are kind of at odds with the interests of users. Uh, investor expectations uh, have, have uh, uh, further decentralized or, or uh, excuse me, centralized the network, that should say centralized, um, uh, uh, where investors have, have demanded and expected uh, this kind of economy of surveillance and monopoly. And the problems really start early on. They start with the ways that we get these companies going in the first place. And uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, path dependency that emerges, and it, and it makes it very hard to uh, consider other options once a company gets going uh, and once it becomes uh, a kind of public utility. Uh, and we see these, these problems manifest for users and uh, issues like fake news, hate speech, uh, bullying uh, uh, and and also a, a kind of uh, declining uh, uh, worker standards uh, when these platforms engage with investment uh, or with with employment uh, and and a uh, uh, dependence on surveillance uh, whose consequences uh, we're still uh, starting to discover uh, we're still starting to uh, still having uh, still have a lot to learn about what it means that Google and Facebook and companies like this know so much about us. Uh, and I think as we discover the consequences of this, uh, the, the need for shared ownership is going to become all the more apparent. So we're talking about the conversion circumstance or the case of an existing, uh, an existing concern uh, there's, I think, a rich ecosystem that has emerged in the last five or so years. Uh, the, the startup scene is quite rich with examples of uh, multi-stakeholder uh, or cooperative, uh, cooperatively owned business startups. But here we're talking really about a strategic play to look at value that's locked into current investments, current funds, and current ecosystems, whether they be spin-outs uh, or cohort participants in accelerators or incubators. And our thesis is this, that companies um, in a given VC or, or other portfolio might by any reasonable standard look like a successful business, but due to the expectations of the early stage investors, 
uh, the concept Nathan talked about earlier, some of those path-dependent terms might have set the business up for success only if it leads to a 10 to 100x uh, liquidity event in, say, three to seven years. And we know that that's, that, that unicorn story is really a lottery shot. And if we're looking at a success rate of one out of every 10 ventures, uh, either IPOing, going public, or being sold in a strategic buyout uh, to a larger uh, to a larger business, that may be a success a definition of success for a strategic investor or venture capital fund, but uh, may leave behind a number of legitimate viable businesses, particularly ones that may be run um, and generate value for users, for workers, uh, for other stakeholders. So our thesis is that there are co portfolio companies in existing investment portfolios that either don't need subsequent financing, they may not go through a Series B, Series C, we're starting to see all kinds of crazy uh, late round extension Series GG, uh, but are actually cash flowing on their own. And so they're not going to need subsequent financing and as a concern that's generating sufficient cash flow uh, to sustain operations, again, may not look like uh, the kind of exit candidate that a traditional VC fund is looking for. They may be operating profitably, in which case, again, there's no need for subsequent financing. They may also not desire or need uh, access to public markets. And so if at the time of, of that portfolio company's operations, profitability might simply be uh, all that's desired. Um, so if there's not a likely IPO or acquisition, what then for the investor? If it's a convertible node, if it's an early stage uh, preferred stock investment, what then? So we're, our question is, and this is really an open question, what percentage of a convertible note portfolio fits this definition, fits this, this profile? Uh, we suspect that number is greater than zero. Um, it may not be a substantial percentage, but if we can uh, attempt to restructure an existing percentage of portfolio companies that may be viewed as a dustbin uh, percentage on a VC fund's portfolio, we're talking about something real, some real value to unlock. Um, we're also looking at the types of portfolio companies that have no strategic buyer. Perhaps it's a niche market or the market that has shifted or that the portfolio company has evolved into uh, just isn't a value to the Googles, Facebooks, and big buyers in the market today, but again, serves a strategic value uh, on a use basis for stakeholders and users, and, and certainly employees and workers. Um, lastly, we're also looking at those portfolio companies that might be slightly more mature and might be ready for an exit, but might again uh, be ready for an exit that looks a little different than uh, either a part sell-off or, um, or, or one of the other forms of, of liquidity. So we're talking about existing tech pipelines, pipelines of investment and existing pipelines of, of, of company growth. Next slide, please. Nathan, I think you're gonna take this one. Uh, we're exploring the uh, uh, the potential for co-ops to to step in here and um, uh, be a kind of strategic buyer uh, that hasn't been recognized. Um, and and part of that is recognizing 
the, the value that cooperative models might be able to bring. Uh, when I talked about that surveillance economy earlier, uh, that's kind of predicated on a certain way of viewing the value of a platform's users, uh, that the, the value is the data is in the data that um, those uh, that can be extracted from those users uh, without scaring them too much, uh, uh, which is often uh, the uh, kind of business model that we've seen. Uh, and uh, what we're losing is the potential for those users to um, uh, to buy into the company, to uh, uh, the to to lend value to the company through their trust, uh, through their participation, uh, through the transparency that uh, co-ownership might allow. Uh, uh, rather than hiding your business model from the users, you present, you're able to present it to them more directly, uh, and, um, and uh, there may be uh, uh, forms of value here that are not being, uh, uh, are not being captured in the current, in the current uh, tech economy because of the way it's, it's been funded, organized, uh, and owned. And so uh, uh, we see potential for co-ops to uh, in certain cases, uh, uh, to provide uh, uh, sustainable exits for um, uh, for uh, certain kinds of, of uh, uh, companies, and and that through that uh, uh, sustainable business model, there could be a return for for the investors who uh, uh, put bets on the company early on, um, and uh, and the the goal here is to find that uh, spot where where the uh, cooperative ownership models uh, can enable a, uh, a decent return, something better uh, than, than the investors might be able to get otherwise in seeking uh, other uh, more conventional forms of exit. And so we'll look at some examples uh, of what we're talking about just to concretize this. Uh, but uh, what we're at, the, the basic overview is identifying candidates and fund portfolios that might be uh, uh, suitable for co-op conversions, uh, identify co-op capital partners uh, who could come in and finance uh, a buyout with exit to future co-owners. So we're not expecting the traditional tech uh, uh, finance uh, uh, folks to necessarily uh, become overnight experts in cooperative finance. We want to draw in existing uh, experts in cooperative finance. So we're talking to people like uh, the Working World, which specializes in worker cooperatives. We, we uh, would like to approach um, uh, partners like, uh, you know, large mutual insurers and and um, uh, cooperative banks uh, that are more familiar with uh, with financing cooperative models, uh, and uh, and then uh, the new co-owners, those those uh, also private equity firms could uh, play a role here. Uh, the new co-owners, the the users in many cases would then pay off the bridge capital from those uh, co-op financing agencies with. Uh, revenue from the business. So if I can jump in for just one second there before we get into the details of the terms, I just wanted to emphasize what Nathan was saying. This actually solves a problem for the investors as well, right? It's not just on the on the social side that, that we've been covering so far. This flips the equation a little bit and is emphasizing also the um, uh, how this can solve one of the problems for the early VC investors, which I think is a, a very creative twist on it. Yeah, Andrea, that's, that's quite interesting. Um, that, that was certainly our approach. We were looking at um, concocting or at least hypothesizing that there were, that there was a problem in the traditional VC model 
and one that we could approach a traditional VC firm and, and get them to think about. And that, that's where we came up with the hypothesis that there's some percentage of, of, of deals in their, in their pipeline or in their, in their fund um, that are not good liquidity exits. And if we can offer them something better than a complete write-off um, that we could get their attention. Yeah, and uh, so we're gonna one launch. last thing, sorry, to, for, for those that have been uh, um, on these calls for a while now, you might remember that a while back we were exploring this idea of uh, using private equity as a vehicle for fostering more conversions of, um, uh, of exiting owners of uh, closely held companies to their employees in the way that uh, New Belgium Brewery has done or, or Just Pickles. Uh, and similarly here, there, there is this idea of, uh, uh, of having this kind of in between vehicle and it would be interesting to see what of uh, Jason and Nathan's work could be applied also to that idea of that interim private equity step. Again, just a little inside baseball for the ones that have been uh, looking at these issues with us for a while. Thanks, sorry. No, thank you, Andrea. We're going to talk about the, pri the private equity example um, as the second here. Um, so we wanted to make this as real as possible and walk through some hypotheticals uh, to kind of draw out what, what the steps might look like. And so in example one, we're talking about a direct buyout scenario. This is, uh, again, using my hypothesis, uh, an existing portfolio company of, say, a traditional early stage venture capital fund, and they've got steady cash flow and a vibrant user community. Uh, the funder or the founder in this case doesn't want to raise additional capital in a qualified financing. And for those of you who are familiar with or have invested in convertible notes without a qualified financing, there's little to no likelihood of that convertible note ever converting into preferred stock uh, down, down, down the road. And so funds are in a quandary to either extend the term of the convertible note, um, seeing no liquidity until that note is either paid off or converts, or they can push on the, 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 the venture to seek an IPO or go through qualified financing. But in this case, we'll posit the founder doesn't see a need for that, doesn't want that. Uh, and so the fund is forced to essentially extend their note indefinitely. And I've heard time and again that a good number of deals for, for real estate VCs end up doing this. And it can be years of note extensions with no liquidity. So those are our targets. So in this case, we're calling this support co. Uh, for portfolio company. And the steps um, when it comes time for a founder to seek an exit um, and a way to provide, again, kind of a solution to the VC to give them uh, the liquidity or some liquidity that they, uh, that they need and are looking for. Uh, again, we'll posit the founder at this point is seeking an exit uh, or at least a restructuring of the equity um, to maybe get the VC fund off his, off his balance sheet or the founder is looking at uh, an exit for, for some other reason. Uh, here, there's essentially a, an enterprise valuation negotiation. Uh, we're talking uh, about a slightly different setup, and so the traditional metrics for valuation uh, are all negotiable and flexible. But here, the end goal is a buyout of the controlling interest of the entity for the benefit of users, workers, contributors. Um, in this case, we're using the most inclusive uh, broad scenario, the multi-stakeholder cooperative, so that we can extend and distribute benefits among the greatest uh, array of stakeholders, workers, users, and contributors. Uh, as Nathan highlighted in our model, 
we pay off the uh, early stage investors with, um, uh, well, in this case, we're not going to have, uh, we don't need to do a cash out. Um, we would be paying off the fund with preferred stock. And in this case, we're talking about a cash flowing business with profitability. And so that preferred stock might yield the target dividend, which is something you've probably uh, talked about in a prior webinar. Um, it's a model that's borrowed from uh, the likes of Equal Exchange, Namaste Solar, where the preferred stock is not capital appreciating stock, but rather dividend bearing stock. Um, and again, in a scenario where a VC fund is looking at a complete write down or uh, you know, some zero rate of return, this might be attractive on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, another key differentiating feature to a multi-stakeholder cooperative is that profits are allocated on the basis of patronage. And so this is a key um, in, uh, circular incentive within the, within the system to generate additional use value, additional engagement and content among users uh, by incentivizing it through profit-based allocation. So the more you use the co-op, the more you benefit from it. Next slide, please. In example number two, we're getting back to uh, some comments uh, that Andrea made before the first example. In this example, it's substantially the same scenario, except we've inserted an intermediary, a private equity buyer uh, that comes along with uh, a pooled, uh, pooled fund of capital and Techco in this case is growing rapidly, not yet profitable, but the founder doesn't want to exit. So again, we're dealing with a portfolio company. Um, maybe it's earlier stage than in Portco. In this case, it's not yet profitable, but growing, uh, but the founder doesn't want to exit and, um, or at least they don't want to exit in traditional terms. And so here we're talking about the kinds of private equity buyers that um, are yet to exist in a lot of cases, especially um, in the tech scene. So we're talking about pooled capital um, with a commitment or at least, uh, at least a commitment, if not some experience with cooperatives that negotiates with the founder to buy, uh, to buy the, the enterprise, to buy the, the, the business. Um, again, if the business isn't profitable, it's growing and the founder doesn't want to exit, we're dealing again with the scenario where the early stage investors are unlikely to see a conversion of their note or a buyout of their preferred equity. So in this case, the fund preferred would would end up extending their note um, rather than seeing liquidity. And so some proposed steps in this circumstance would be that the private equity buyer negotiates the buyout of the business. Um, they uh, would essentially pay out the uh, the fund, if it's a convertible note, they would get paid out at either the buyout valuation or the valuation cap which provides them with liquidity uh, perhaps sooner or in, in, a, in, a, in a value greater than they otherwise would. Private equity firm takes control, restructures um, with a, a goal toward a balancing growth and profitability. Um, but in this case, they have a strong commitment to cooperative ownership and they embark on a plan to transition the business to user ownership. Um, so they're building the essential structure, foundation, and channels of engagement to do that. Um, and they recoup their investment through that transition through profitability. So uh, as the business uh, transitions from high growth to profitability, 
they can essentially recoup some of their investment through the operating cash flows of the business in a non-extractive fashion, turning over control uh, on a more uh, methodical, uh, in a more methodical way and on a slightly longer time frame to user ownership. Um, and in this case, the resulting entity can operate either on a buy-in scenario or on an earn-in, but we'd likely insert some sort of poison pill or um, profitable sale prevention measures so that the entity truly exists in perpetuity as um, a user-owned enterprise. Example three, we uh, inserted to give some context and to highlight uh, some potential terms of an early stage deal even prior to the uh, investment opportunities that might exist in examples one and two. And this term sheet, if you will, is adapted from an interesting model put out by Indy uh, VC. Their uh, term sheet is essentially open source. It's on GitHub, it's online. You can go to Indy VC and learn more. Uh, but they've taken, I think, a fairly progressive view in early stage investing. And the model fits quite well in looking at potential investment in uh, a startup that's organized as a cooperative or uh, a startup that might eventually seek to become uh, owned by its stakeholders. And the reason I believe this is because we're looking at an investment model that relies on, uh, on operating income rather than on uh, taking distributions out of the necessary uh, cash flows of the business or siphoning off value from from users. So in the NDVC scenario, uh, an investor makes an investment on an unpriced basis in an instrument that looks a little bit like a convertible note. The difference here is that there's a flexible line of credit in exchange for a fixed amount of equity. So in this case, the investor gets 10% equity in the form of preferred stock whenever that preferred stock is issued. Uh, so again, somewhat like a convertible note, a little bit like um, an instrument called a safe, if you've heard of it. And the way the investor re uh, reaps return is through discretionary cash distributions. So again, unlike the scenario where the investor's paid off only in the event of liquidity, this is a case where the investor is able to recoup return during the course of growth and achieving profitability. Um, through discretionary cash distributions and profit sharing, the, the investment is capped and this is flexible. You can decide on, agree to whatever cap is appropriate. Um, here's the 3x cap, and there's uh, um, a caveat that if the cap is reached sooner, the, um, the upfront investment essentially takes a haircut on the amount of equity that they are entitled to when the financing, um, or if the financing takes place later on. So in this case, you see that there's no need for an exit or an additional financing for an investor to uh, see a return on that investment, and we believe that this model can lay the groundwork for a more sustainable, ethical, and regenerative tech startup, as well as be used as an instrument uh, directly for uh, a tech uh, co-op uh, if it's starting that way from the very beginning. Nathan, back Great, to you. Great, uh, fantastic. And, and, um, uh, uh, so those are some of the, the details of what we're thinking about, um, but I think a really key uh, uh, piece of the argument here is that there is, is value to be uh, unlocked here, and I think it's worth 
uh, looking at a few examples. And this is really important for making the case to someone like the uh, a private equity uh, firm that might be interested in committing to a co-op model um, uh, and emphasizing that, the, that this kind of model would have uh, unique value propositions uh, uh, that we need to consider. Um, and so we'll look at a few examples uh, uh, that, that help inform this reasoning, uh, as well as some examples of, um, of conversions. And we'll start with the, with the latter. Um, uh, this is one that uh, here in Boulder that Jason has been involved in. Do you want to say a bit about the relevance of this case here? It's a uh, worker cooperative uh, uh, solar uh, installation and utility company. Yeah, so in North Boulder, Namaste Solar, is not, while not a tech company, is an example of a successful uh, worker-owner buyout. Um, we restructured the business and essentially bought, uh, bought back the business on a cooperative basis. Uh, it was one of the early examples that's now pointed to as, as a success case, demonstrating that cooperative conversions uh, were a potential source of business succession planning and um, became a uh, became a use case in looking at how capital can be deployed and used in a sustainable and non-extractive fashion, uh, and so it, yeah, it's viewed as as a success story for um, a cooperative conversion, although at the periphery of of the tech uh, economy that we're talking about today. And I think one thing that's really powerful about this example is it was started as um, a partnership, right? I mean, it was started. Uh, uh, fairly conventionally, the founders actually didn't know about cooperatives uh, uh, when they when they started it, and um, and I think that model is really appropriate for a lot of tech uh, startups to begin not as a cooperative when you have, uh, uh, but but to, but for the founders to take on the risk for themselves and then to uh, maybe shift to a, a more cooperative model once they have uh, established a user base. Uh, uh, in many cases, it doesn't make sense to. Uh, begin cooperatively because you're still developing and proving the concept uh, in the early months or years, and um, and so it really makes sense to uh, up, to plan for conversion rather than to uh, uh, imagine that a cooperative model will make sense at the beginning. One example of a cooperative startup um, is Stocks United, which I mentioned earlier, um, and this uh, uh, demonstrates, I think, a few principles. One of the things that uh, uh, enabled Stocksy to get going was that it was founded by executives uh, uh, who, who had been part of uh, existing dominant uh, platforms in the in the stock photo space, and so they were bringing both their experience and also capital. They had been uh, they benefited from a buyout of iStock, and um, so they were able to invest a uh, hundred uh, or excuse me a, a one million dollar loan into Stocksy United, which was then paid back within, I believe, a couple of years. Um, and uh, they were uh, uh, very successful and correct in recognizing that the cooperative model in their, um, in their sector uh, would be very competitive. They were actually able to outcompete much larger um, uh, uh, companies uh, in a highly competitive market because uh, through co-ownership, they were able to get the highest quality work and the best photographers. Uh, and so that was a case where uh, uh, they, they uh, banked on, um, on, uh, on the added value that cooperatives might, uh, might contribute. Inching us closer to direct 
to a direct analogy, Dojo4 is a uh, tech services agency, again, here in Boulder, that uh, just within the last six or eight weeks converted um, its partnership startup structure to a worker cooperative, um, essentially leveraging their integrity brand as a certified tech services agency um, to preserve their flexibility, allow them to grow, and to um, kind of boost their uh, boost their brand. And they really embraced the process and um, and interesting to see the conversations that took place during that conversion process and thinking about not just the services that they offer, but the way that technology can be developed as a product and the way that uh, data and technology ownership plays into and intersects with the cooperative model. Um, while still primarily a services agency, uh, Dojo4 is another successful example of a cooperative conversion um, to enable scale in, in uh, while remaining true to the underlying values and uh, integrity that, that makes them successful, but also an example where technology services um, often bleeds over into product development and the way that a cooperative develops and owns uh, the technology IP um, is a really interesting case. Um, another case that, that informs uh, this thinking is Associated Press, which, which uh, began as a cooperative in the, in the 1840s, um, but uh, demonstrates the capacity of this model to operate at scale uh, as a media, uh, 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 as a media utility. Um, and uh, this is relevant to thinking about some of the larger platforms that, that we, um, uh, that we might consider. And I, I, another feature of the AP model is that unlike a lot of, you know, say Soxy, which is uh, owned by uh, individuals who participate in the company, uh, Associated Press is a cooperative of media companies. Um, so this uh, pr pr presents another opportunity, especially for that model one, where the, um, where the, where the uh, uh, users of the platform may actually uh, have the capacity to, to help capitalize it. Uh, so maybe rather than having a bunch of uh, uh, individual members be the owners of uh, and the members of the cooperative, uh, it could be institutional owners and members. Another example is uh, maybe an unlikely one. Looking at the agriculture sector where cooperatives have been uh, really instrumental in, uh, in, in, in maintaining, preserving um, small family farm uh, sovereignty, uh, there's one of the largest uh, co-op operations in the U.S. is called CHF. They're a Fortune 100 ag services co-op uh, with hundreds, if not thousands, of, of members throughout the country. And similar to AP, in this case, we're looking at membership comprised of independent, uh, independent farm operations. And CHF itself operates as both a marketing cooperative and as a commodity um, processing and distribution platform, enabling individual farm operations to bring their commodities to market and achieve uh, price parity uh, or, or at least uh, the, the fair treatment that one might get using a conglomerate um, uh, system like, like Monsanto, ConAgro, one of the others. But interestingly, in this case, CHS, as essentially a utility of farmers, created a tech platform to enable its farmers to optimize their yield uh, through 
um, GIS mapping and through uh, data input system that the farmers can use at their own location, inputting and analyzing the data. And what's so interesting in this case is that the underlying IP of the system, as well as the data value contributed by farmers, is funneled into a system that's collectively owned by, for, and of the farmers. There's really no risk that uh, the data is going to be extracted for advertising value or that the platform will one day be leveraged for a uh, Wall Street buyout. But in this case, the data truly is used to maximize the value to the farmer owners. Uh, and with the uh, accompaniment of CHF operating at scale, this becomes a more viable um, proposition, whereas an individual or even a small set of farmers likely couldn't afford to develop the technology on their own. Um, and as I said, CHS is a, is a substantial competitor in the ag commodities business. Uh, Colorado's home to a good number of those members, and the technology uh, has, has really been instrumental in, uh, in, in making the farmers uh, successful and uh, bringing their operations into the 21st century. And then a, a final example, which I mentioned earlier, is, is Twitter. Uh, and this is a, a bit of an outlying one, uh, uh, but, it's, um, but it's been uh, su taken surprisingly seriously. Um, I, you know, I proposed in an article in The Guardian last September that maybe rather than Google or Salesforce or Disney buying the company, uh, users should. Uh, and uh, one of the first people to uh, affirm this idea and to say he would buy in and, and support this uh, was Albert Wenger of, of uh, Union Square Ventures. And, and just this last, uh, this Monday, he posted a blog post uh, explaining some of his reasons for, for supporting uh, uh, the, the shareholder proposal that we've, uh, that we've uh, uh, put forward. And, and that proposal is quite modest. It's just uh, suggesting not that Twitter immediately converts to user ownership, but simply that it study the options. And, um, and that's really in keeping with uh, what we're uh, encouraging here and what we're offering in this presentation, which is just an invitation into the conversation about what these kinds of models uh, might look like. And, and uh, uh, you know, we've been surprised to see how uh, uh, publications from the Financial Times uh, uh, repeatedly to Vanity Fair have been uh, taking this idea seriously and, and um, uh, getting people thinking about some of the nuts and bolts of uh, cooperative transition in ways that they otherwise uh, haven't so far. So um, we want to end just by uh, uh, reiterating uh, our ambition to build uh, pathways for entrepreneurs and investors uh, uh, to embrace these cooperative models and, and to in, in turn create uh, a fairer internet for everyone. And so we're kind of looking for your help to figure out how we can grasp some of these models into the existing deal flows of the, of the tech economy and, and uh, create some better options. Jason, do you want to wrap this up here? Yeah, so, you know, we're looking for a conversation to emerge. We're looking for feedback and input. Um, you know, we, we think that there's a, an opportunity and we think that there's a way to unlock value and provide a triple win. Um, and so, you know, we leave you with these questions for anyone on the phone um, who's not able to see. You know, we're looking at who should be involved in this work, um, what barriers exist to deploying the capital needed to create a, a viable alternative to 
monopoly control uh, and concentration of of technology in in our day-to-day um, -day, uh, lives. How do we identify and vet deals? I think this is a really important question about building a pipeline. And if you're listening and are interested, uh, what might what role might you play? We're interested in uh, again starting a conversation and learning from uh, the experiences that you've had. So I think with that we will uh, wrap up the content and open it up for question and discussion. Great. Thank you very much, Jason and uh, Nathan. This is uh, fantastic. A few questions have already come in and uh, I'll turn to those in a second. But let me see. Uh, we should have uh, Brendan Martin on the line from the working world. Uh, Brendan, are you on? Yes, I am. And hey, guys, how you doing? Uh, great job in the presentation. Sorry, I'm surprised guest. <laughs> good good to have you on. Good to have you here, Brendan. So yeah, um, just wanted to see how you see all this fitting with uh, with what the working world has been uh, has been doing, and especially some of the the opportunities um, to combine it with an earlier question from some of the investors on the line around where uh, whether there is a concrete pipeline now where this could be experimented with. Uh, what have you seen in your work, Brendan? Sure, um, I'll try to answer that succinctly. So just, um, you know, so the working world, we, we make investments into worker and other types of community-owned businesses um, and have been doing that in, in many ways with the eye of being like a lab to help blaze a trail for plausible investments for investors to come in and pick it up at scale. Um, so that's sort of part of our mission. And um, the possibility of these kind of tech platform cooperatives is one of those. Um, you know, we make, you know, investor, um, obviously, you know, if you're an impact investor, you might think, okay, it's okay, we could share some returns. But obviously in an overheated market like tech investments, you might wonder, like, what is the chance of getting the kind of investments at the scale you need uh, to compete there? Um, there's, a, there's a very strong argument that I'll point out for the, the theoreticals um, underpinning platform cooperatives. And most of the challenges that they face, it's certainly not in building an app. Um, it's really on all the participants in the app that is their biggest expenditure. It, it's in Uber. It's all the legal um, and marketing battles they have to fight because the taxi drivers aren't part owners. Um, they wouldn't have the different governments in the world fighting them if they did have all the local people as owners. In Twitter, it's having to spend a couple billion dollars to buy a, a, a eight-employee company named Instagram because you're afraid that your customers might just suddenly leave. Um, and the risk they face is that, that they are trying to extract the maximum possible from the different users of their platform. So then they also face the risk of what those users do, and they have to actually spend most of the money controlling for that. So while if you said, okay, we're going to start some parallel thing or buy out uh, one of these platforms and make its users cooperatively own it, then, well, that just means we're going to have to give up some of our return for those users, and is that going to be scalable in, in the size of the tech world? We'd argue is that you are giving up some return, and some of that might be impact-motivated um, for all the reasons that the guys just laid out uh, really well. And it's all, but it's also a question of lowering your risk. So rather than thinking only one out of 100 of these crazy tech projects is going to work out, and too bad we just gave them $10 million to, opt to, for, to a bunch of millennials to operate a cool-looking office for a while and go out of business, 
um, when there is actual engagement from the platform users, your your failure rate and costs can go way down. So the argument is that this is a way for capital to get less returns, um, but also at a lower risk, so still not necessarily um, losing from a market perspective. Um, that's that's it, and it's also very plausible that as certain parts of the tech world mature, and there's not not such constant disruption of these online platforms that that would be the most stable direction for them to take. Again, Facebook is constantly worried about becoming obsolete and all you need is one next social media app to make a multi, multi-billion dollar company face trouble and they're constantly trying to stave that off. Whereas if their, owners were, if their, if their users were part owners, it would be very different. Um, so that, that might be a mature place for something like Facebook to park itself. Um, for something like Twitter to park itself um, is in distributed ownership, um, and that's the that's the best way to guarantee the long-term value of the underlying asset. Um, so uh, just a little market-based um, pitch for why we think um, that distributed ownership isn't just a nice idea. Um, it's possibly a very sound one for um, keeping the, the asset value high um, for lowering lo losses and for making sound, stable investments that still allow profit to be shared. Um, so we've worked with some uh, platforms like this. There is a, a platform we were working with for um, doing a, it's a type of community-based, kind of community-supported agriculture, except they were very cleverly not just giving you the same head of lettuce every day for a month um, because they, they sourced from many farms um, rather than one. Um, and they got their customers online and did the sourcing online. There was a lot of tech backend for this process. Um, and there was a tension between the brick-and-mortar hacking uh, space, which was very community-tied and had these people coming in to pick up their, their, their boxes or get them delivered and understood that it was a community um, project. And then the tech backend, which was not connected to the brick-and-mortar things, which wants to, do, wants to imagine all that brick-and-mortar and, and labor-based stuff as being as streamlined, um, as commodified and as uncommunity related as possible, sort of in an Amazon warehouse kind of way. And that just wasn't, that didn't work that well for these community-based um, distribution points that were trying to connect to the local farmers and trying to connect the local community to sell their, sell their goods. So that tension, um, they were looking at trying to resolve by having those, um, those local, so city-based or neighborhood-based points of packaging and distribution be actually owned by the workers in them um, and there was some model looking at of, of then even offering a second class of membership for the consumers of the this sort of um, high-end CSA or uh, new, new wave CSA kind of thing. And then have the tech platform um, be used in multiple cities and multiple places and that possibly being then owned by at, by the, me the members being the local-based CSAs all owning together the tech backends, which then could be invested in directly just for the the tech part because the investments look so different and someone who's interested in the tech investment has trouble with the brick and mortar side and vice versa. Um, so that's a, that's a project which it's not investable at the moment, but it's the kind of thing we've seen um, emerging. Uh, we don't have a tech uh, platform you could invest in tomorrow, but we um, probably will in the next year or so if that, if like the, the work that the guys on the line are doing that help explain how there is a market for this uh, starts to pick up. I'll end it there. You can, you can, we could talk a bit more. I can try to bring up some other examples, but I think that's pretty good for now. 
Yeah, and uh, just in terms of a couple other, uh, th thank you so much, Brendan. Uh, a couple other examples in terms of pipelines uh, that that uh, could be considered. Uh, you know, one is is kind of one-off uh, examples like uh, Josephine, which which did an earlier presentation. You know, and which has been constrained in its ability to share ownership, which the founders really want to do uh, uh, because of its uh, its investment history. And if we were able to step in and, and create a, an upside for the early investors, um, you know, that, that those options might, might expand. Um, you know, another uh, 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 strategy is looking at something like uh, Open Collectives, uh, which is a new platform that's uh, kind of building a, an economic layer on open source communities. And, um, uh, and so th this really for a kind of startup model, enabling open source communities to, um, uh, to organize cooperatively as kind of a quick way to get going uh, is something that, that I've been looking at quite a bit as well. And, uh, but I think mainly what we're, we're trying to target here are uh, the, the companies that aren't already advertising their interest in you know, open and cooperative uh, models, but may actually be really excellent candidates. So we're trying to kind of find our way into the mainstream accelerators and, and incubators and, and um, uh, and, and be able to start asking questions. And I've, I've found that, you know, for instance, when I do seminars or uh, 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 kind of counseling and mentoring with startups, that, that once you start the conversation with them, they get really excited about these options uh, and, and uh, some really creative ideas start coming up. But for most of them, uh, they're not even uh, seeing the question get raised. And I'll add a third uh, kind of leg to the strategy, which is for folks who have been to pitch events for some of the big uh, tech accelerators, um, you know, you can kind of spot which of those pitching companies is a good candidate. Um, and what, what essentially gave rise to some of these ideas was talking to folks at uh, one of the big local uh, tech accelerators, Techstars. And it struck me that they're constantly building new portfolios and looking for um, the next lottery play only to disregard their existing pipeline. And so I think there's a place for uh, an alternative version of shareholder activism in becoming an LP, a limited partner in some of these funds to begin a dialogue and a relationship with the fund managers to think about uh, what of their existing portfolios um, might be, you know, a good exit candidate in this in this manner, and what sorts of, um, you know, new verticals is the is the accelerator going where they can take a fresher approach. But we see the existing pipelines through the accelerator and incubator networks as uh, part of our target and really part of the way that we can strategically start to roll um, some use cases out of the existing ecosystem without having to create new models from whole cloth, which uh, has its benefits, but certainly also its its inefficiencies and costs. Great, fantastic. <clears throat> thank you, Jason. Thank you, Nathan. And thanks, Brendan, for uh, for jumping in. So let's see if there are any questions uh, on the line. If you'd like, uh, feel free to unmute yourself. And uh, if not, I will uh, uh, I will unmute you on uh, on this end if you are on the phone. Um, 
Bruce, if you're dialed in from the phone, I'll try to unmute you there in case uh, you had any views on this. The part that we're especially interested in uh, in looking at now is the piece around the the feasibility. So maybe Bruce, since you sit both uh, on on both sides, working both on the on the investor side and on the entrepreneur side, oftentimes, uh, how do you see this uh, playing out in practice? And do you think there is a, a concrete pipeline that some of the members of our investor network could start exploring. I'm going to start unmuting people as I try to discover which one is uh, Bruce in hiding. Huh. Are you there? Uh, Andrea, this is David Berg. I do have a question, but I'll, I'll wait till you uh, find Bruce. Uh, well, why don't you why don't you jump in meanwhile? Great. Yeah, I didn't have luck with the uh, with the WebNX program. Sorry. So I've been following along by phone. Um, one question and, uh, and two comments. The comments, I guess, is that as, as I look at the deals that we've reviewed over the last couple of years, I think you guys have um, you've latched on a couple of different issues that are really interesting, but are not necessarily all related to the co-op issue. So when I look at Model One kind of assuming, you know, positive cash flow, that sort of thing. You know, I think you've narrowed down to, like, are there secondary market opportunities for venture fund deals? And I think there's a yes on that for sure. But you could say that whether it's a nonprofit buyout or whether it's a co-op buyout, but definitely there's some deals out there in that space. I think likewise on the capped return issue, you can say there's opportunities to structure a capped return or a discounted buyback. I think there's some deal opportunities out there in that space. But I would be really curious to hear a couple of comments, I guess, on as you look specifically at the co-op side, um, how do you deal with the follow-on capital issue? Because a lot of these deals are, are much easier if you're on the spectrum that are not super capital intensive, but those that need the B, C, and D round get a little more complex in terms of how you structure it in the co-op space. And then the second question being, um, be super interested to hear more about, I think uh, I like that Brendan used the term distributed ownership because we look at a lot of deals that are partially worker-owned that still allow for conventional capital on the outside and conventional exits in some place, but share the exits. So have you looked at those models as well? Thanks. Uh, this is Jason. I'll, I'll try to tackle those. Those are great uh, comments, very, very insightful and, 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 and wonderful questions. Um, I'll tackle your last question first, which is to say, yes, I do a lot of work with along the spectrum. In fact, um, you noted that there's a spectrum in this in this practice, and, and there really is. I work along that spectrum of, of employee ownership uh, from small, partially employee-owned businesses that do uh, seek outside funding for capital-intensive businesses all the way to 100% uh, worker cooperatives. And I think we need to remain open and flexible and avoid the dogma that often comes with uh, with with worker ownership or stakeholder ownership models. And I think that's why we're looking at this as a strategic play to say, is there an opportunity um, that we can uh, begin to kind of play around with and then experiment on and, and learn from? Um, so I think that spectrum allows us some more options. Unfortunately, that doesn't clarify the picture very much. We don't, we'll likely not have a single standard bearer when it comes to 
a term sheet, but um, we'll have a variety of indicia uh, of, of, of companies and deals that we can uh, begin to just, you know, kind of rely on that awareness and then start to ask different questions. Um, I have done work with, to answer your, your first question, I have done work with businesses that are um, stakeholder owned, that are capital intensive and have had to go after uh, later round financing. And many of the new structures uh, or new cooperative structures enable that financing to come into the fray. So um, while you know a, a later round investment might not be possible on a target dividend basis using you know the uh, target dividend scenario, there are other models out there that allow for uh, profit-based um, allocations and asset sale uh, allocations as well. And some of those uh, forms allow for voting rights of investors. They're essentially a hybrid model between a, a traditional cooperative and an LLC. Um, and that model here in Colorado and, and a few other jurisdictions is known as the Limited Cooperative Association. Um, and I've used that form for ventures that are likely to need subsequent uh, financing. They haven't yet gone that route, but they are set up to do so. And the the case to uh, to make to investors is really just a business case at that point. But the economics um, are quite flexible, and I think the the rate of return can be substantially greater than what's otherwise available with kind of a five or seven percent capital based return. Thank you, Jason. Um, I think Bruce, uh, if you're on now. Sure, thanks, Andrea. Yeah, just two thoughts I had on, I think feasibility is, is an important question and and uh, I had two thoughts, one from the investor side and one from the enterprise side. On the investor side, I think it's, it's just uh, quite part of the challenge is finding investors who are willing to make investments that aren't going to have the sort of return profile that would be typical of a of a you know private equity type of investment. So I think usually when investors think about investing in tech or doing direct private equity investments in that in that um, industry, they're they're looking for the for the home run type of return. And so and I, I still I still see even in impact investing circles a lot of a lot of resistance to thinking differently about what what is an appropriate return um, in an earlier stage context or if it's if it's a mature company. I know we also saw sort of saw the model of investing in a mature company that had cash flow. Um, you know, for some reason that that type of investment doesn't seem to to interest. A lot of a lot of the investors that I'm that I'm talking to, if they're looking for more predictable, maybe a fixed income type of return, they want to they seem to want to do that in conventional ways. Um, and again, if they're going to get involved in in private equity type of investing, they seem to be looking most often for kind of a, a, a typical type of risk adjusted return profile. So I, I think one is just finding investors who are willing to think. Differently about these investments and think differently about return. On the, on the enterprise side, I think one very practical problem is, I think maybe especially in tech, is is finding you know 
finding the tech entrepreneurs who are are willing to be involved in this kind of very democratic, egalitarian um, kind of structure. It, it seems to me that, I mean, of course, the model that is set in conventional tech is, you know, founders are kind of like gods, and they should have these super super booting um, provisions that that maintain control sometimes into death, um, literally, um, and. Um, and and I see that even with more progressive, maybe some of the more progressive technology companies that aren't public um, but could be trending that way, they progressive in that they might be sort of by B corporations or even benefit corporations. But my my sense is there's still um, an inclination among among the founders to want to maintain voting control or maintain majority control over the organization. So so there's, you know, this real kind of, and I, to a much smaller extent, saw that even with myself and, and for example, talking to the founder of Gojo4, when we're thinking about our conversions, thinking about as as founders that, you know, not only are these organizations, not only are we giving up control, um, but we're also changing the economic dynamics um, in, a, in a very fundamental and dramatic way. I mean, we're, we're essentially saying we're not, you know, we're not going to be our, as a, as a worker co-op, our distributions, our economic participation is not based on a historical investment that we made, may have made in sweat equity or even capital investment, but it's based on our, our current performance, our, our, our current contribution to the business, and it's it's measured in accordance to a formula that's the same as our other partners or coworkers. So, so it is this huge, you know, this huge shift in thinking from sort of the hero, you know, super person entrepreneur who should be at the front, uh, uh, both in terms of economic reward and and control of the organization, to really saying, I'm just one of many, and I'm going to be working on these very cooperative egalitarian principles. But I think that that's a it's an important issue to raise. Um, uh, though I think it's it's also important to to recognize that that there can be flexibility in how these models might uh, uh, form on a governance side as well. And uh, I would point back to the example of Stocksy United uh, for this, which is a, a platform that you know recognizes the need for a very agile and and um, uh, uh, and flexible uh, governance structure. Um, and they've reflected that in their in their ownership model as well as just in the day-to-day -day governance. So, so they're able to operate in many respects as a um, you know as as any other uh, tech company of its size does, with considerable authority vested in the CEO Brianna Wetlopper. Um, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of ongoing uh, engagement with the user community, but um, as any other platform has to do. Uh, but uh, a lot of the control is is, is hers uh, and her team's, and then also uh, they've reserved special powers for what they call ad advisors, which are really mainly founders. Uh, so they have a, a separate uh, uh, um, class in their multi-stakeholder structure that allows for uh, uh, for preserve preserving uh, uh, some element of, of founder control that I think you know ends up being kind of comparable to what a founder might expect to, to retain 
uh, in the case of um, in the case of investor ownership. Um, and and I think really the the choice can be can be uh, 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 phrased less as one of of between retaining control and giving it away to users, uh, uh, as as it is being retaining a similar degree of control as as a lot of these platforms uh, founders have to give up anyway uh, for financing purposes, uh, but uh, having a different alignment. And you 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 pointed to that, uh, uh, Bruce, in in your example that uh, having a business model that is aligned uh, toward. Uh, user interests rather than um, rather than investor returns primarily. And I wanted to remark, um, maybe in, in in short in a short comment, I'm I operate I'm seeing a convergence really of of investor and entrepreneur interests in three respects. Um, one is that I create in about half of the cooperatives that I form, I create a special founder class of, of interest um, to recognize and at least partially reward the, um, the initial risk that an entrepreneur takes and the sweat equity that he or she puts in and differentiate it from that of a later, uh, a later entering member or worker. Uh, so that's in about half the deals I do. The second comment is that um, some of the more flexible cooperative structures will allow for a balance of investor and member interest. Um, when it comes to liquidity. So it's not to say that 0% of these options are ever going to provide a home run opportunity. It's just that that may not be the ostensible and decided exit for the enterprise. Um, and to reflect that, I've, I've talked to several of you about the notion of a poison pill that strips away residual uh, positive proceeds from a liquidity event and kind of redirects it to a charitable endeavor or philanthropic effort or one that supports a cause. Um, but in another case recently, um, we took essentially a formula that equitably divided up the liquidity value of the enterprise between the investors and the users. And so we have the flexibility to design what the exit looks like if it comes to that. The last comment I'll make is that 90% of the startup co-ops I work on are being founded by people who have been through one or more traditional startup cycles, um, supported by venture capital and having founded a traditional business, very often in tech, particularly uh, some of the younger entrepreneurs. And they've made their way often after a bad experience with an exit or a bad experience with the traditional uh, method of raising uh, capital to come to the cooperative and find it as a humane while completely restructured model for a business, um, they're really their converts. And it's just a quite, it's an interesting anecdote, but I thought I'd mention it because um, it's just such an overwhelming experience uh, and quite a frequent one that I have. Great. Thank you. And I will note that David Burke from Underdog, who spoke earlier, uh, has been one of the pioneers in the idea of having the exit into a nonprofit type of uh, type of structure, having that mixed uh, type of ownership there. So I would definitely uh, refer to Underdog as a as a resource on that. So one thing that comes up, including with uh, with Bruce's comment earlier on the on the interest of impact investors, very interestingly. Interestingly for me, at the intersection of the ownership piece and the governance piece, it seems like these 
area is starting to attract a lot of more conventional investors too. And uh, we were looking at it in the case of the recent uh, Snap IPO, the parent company of Snapchat that essentially strips away all sorts of governance rights has created meaningful backlash on the part of, um, of investors that are uh, that are used to having, you know, one share, one vote, um, and trying to reconcile, which is something that we'll be exploring soon, this idea of how you can have the right amount of governance in the sense of looking favorably at entities such as the New York Times, where they have the dual uh, class share in order to preserve the, the mission, which keeps at bay some of the, especially the activist investors that could be uh, impinging on that uh, on that mission piece with something like SNAP where you have zero investor voice essentially and zero potential for uh, shareholder advocacy and, um, and shareholder resolution. So I think that even moving outside of the pure play impact investors, there is a group of folks even at the big pension fund level that are looking more at what it means for the governance to be, um, uh, to be going the way that it's going both with current SEC actions on uh, um, on shareholder voice and shareholder power and again with companies getting away in the public markets with doing an IPO like uh, like snap just um, uh, just did um, now uh, even from the comments that came through Jason and Nathan um, and the same folks that have been looking at uh, Josephine uh, recently, so I would encourage you as um, as potential deals come up to be explored within these structures to definitely bring them up with this uh, with this group because I think that there are folks chomping at the bit if that's the right expression um, and just trying to see you know if we can turn quickly this from a, a very cool somewhat theoretical model into something that they can start putting some money in and uh, and see how that plays out. And uh, with that, let me check and see if there were any other questions that I um, uh, that we had missed here. So there were some uh, questions that came in around governance and uh, uh, potential conflicts of interest uh, between the stakeholders, and I imagine with the with the ownership piece, um, I I hadn't uh, thought particularly about the conflict of interest because I always say it to use. Morgan Simon's phrase more as a confluence of interests when you have this, uh, this stakeholder alignment. But um, Jason, Nathan, is there anything that you wanted to uh, to remark on that? Do you see any kind of potential conflict? And I mean, you know what my opinion is that the conflict is really when uh, the shareholders that call the shots for drivers, cooks, and everybody else. But <laughs> well, I, I think it just it just points to the need for appropriate uh, ownership design. Uh, you know, to use Marjorie Kelly's phrase, you know, and to and to really think carefully about what is the appropriate model for uh, for a given business. Um, uh, you know, for instance, if Facebook users were to become uh, owners today, uh, and they and they had no uh, uh, real significant uh, uh, skin in the game. Uh, it was just kind of handed to them. I think there would be significant conflict of interest because suddenly they'd realize, hey, we're being, you know, watched and our data is being sold, and uh, they know, you know, way more about us uh, than than we really realize. Um, uh, and so they would kind of mothball the business, and that would be a big problem. Uh, and and so I, you know, maybe that's that's the kind of 
uh, scenario that that we're that we're considering here. But I think if you design a business where uh, the stakeholdership uh, actually feeds the value uh, uh, that the business is creating, uh, then it makes a lot of sense. And and I think this this uh, I, I would emphasize the fact that when we talk about platform co-ops, I think we have to not just think about co-op versions of existing companies. Um, if, if you look at the, um, the nature of the cooperative uh, uh, movement uh, around the world today, it tends to cluster in certain sectors. It tends to also cluster in sectors that, that investor-owned businesses tend to not do so well in or not be interested in. Um, and so I think uh, we also want to identify not just replacements of existing companies, uh, uh, but, uh, but competitive, uh, but, but sectors where cooperation can be a competitive advantage. And Associated Press is an example of that, where over the years, you know, for the century and a half of the company's existence, um, a number of investor-owned competitors have arisen, and they've generally fallen um, because this model just works very, very well in that sector. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, we want, we want to look for the sweet spots where the cooperative model can enable uh, alignments that that uh, otherwise uh, uh, wouldn't work out. And, and you know, another example I might add is is um, is uh, for social media. Um, one thing that we're seeing right now is the emergence of a new open source alternative to Twitter called Mastodon, and uh, it's it's uh, built on a model of, of federated, distributed server nodes rather than one central uh, version. Um, and this is a very um, you know, co-op compatible model. It works very well for uh, a kind of federated network of, of cooperatives using the same software, um, but it would work really badly for a centralized company. Actually, Twitter considered integrating that technology into the company very early on, uh, but the investors said no because it just didn't work for their business model. So I think there are, there are actually a, a, a lot of uh, potential opportunities for uh, uh, where the technology is already there uh, for developing uh, new kinds of platform businesses. The problem is the business models uh, aligned to that technology aren't there, and there may be some situations where cooperatives could be uh, a point of intervention for for providing that business model. Great. I want to say we have a. Um, sorry, let me uh, let me turn to Yuli Mazinovsky, who had a question, and then we can turn it back to Jason for his comments. Uh, hi, thanks. You guys, this is a very, uh, to me, a very informative presentation, certainly not my daily life. I was drawn to it for the media aspect of the headline. I work in entertainment, have done traditional entertainment, Hollywood, really movies, TV, and very soon commercial, commercial advertising production. And I, I wanted to just open this question in, in a loose way because it, to me, there seems like a, a rather large disconnect in the, in the theoretical to the practical. I think much of what's missing here um, on my end in terms of building companies and, and attracting, um, what's what I'm looking for, attracting investors, uh, is that investors don't don't see traditional business. Sorry, so most much of this discussion was centered on tech, but in entertainment, which is a very mature business, rates of return are much you know much smaller and are to be accrued over long, long time horizons. As soon as I, you know, if I'm, you know, raising money or looking for money from folks, you tell people, oh, I get a 4% return a year, they're, they're, it's, the snooze button is hit. It's as if they're not interested. And I think part of that is, you know, can you talk about investor culture-wise? And maybe this is just American investor culture. There are the sort of 
you know, the Mittelstand idea, which was popular a year or two ago in the press, like, but to what extent can investors be reconditioned to accept that it's okay to grow something slowly and steadily, whether through, you know, cooperativism or simply responsibly managed businesses? And that's, that's the kind of work typically entertainment has done and has profited from. Um, uh, what, what can be made appealing to investors with that, with that sort of model? I mean, I think, I think that's also to me a big, um, a big issue on the media, pure, the quote unquote pure media side of things. Is, Clear. Thanks, Julie. I think that question is probably best for for you, Andrea, or um, or, or somebody kind of in the in the finance business. Well, I can address it very very quickly in terms of yes, I agree that most of what is needed here is is. Uh, change of uh change of mentality on the part of the of the investors and i think that that is happening naturally in part that's why i was uh i was focusing on the concrete examples right because to the extent that we have a an emerging group of investors that are keen to do slow and steady growth that understand that not everything needs to look like a unicorn um, we want to be able to to provide some good early proof of concept so they can start sinking their teeth into it. And uh, I would encourage anybody, again, that has a model of that sort to, to bring it up with us to see if we can uh, use it as something that could then be used to further uh, this change of mindset on the part of the on the part of the investors. So it's a it's a two-way street, as uh, Jason was saying earlier. You know, the two areas are coalescing around this uh, around these alternative models. Uh, there's a lot of money that we see flowing into media now. Perhaps not the pure play media type, Yuli, that you were talking about, but with you know the current political climate, we've seen a resurgence of investor interest in uh, in democratic media. Let's call it that way. So this might be a good moment to start um, jumping on that and uh, saying not, let's not only fund different media, let's fund media differently in ways that actually build in the type of uh, the type of structures that we would like to that would like to see. Um, I would just can I just emphasize one other thing? Please. Um, I, I think I, I don't I think what we're trying to get at is is a is a situation where we don't have to re-educate the whole financial sector. Um, uh, uh, and uh, part of what, what I would love to see happen is to create a kind of bridge between existing capital and co-op finance, right? Like, you know, co-bank down the road from me in, in Denver, a big cooperative bank that finances power plants for, you know, big electric cooperatives, right? Uh, $128 billion enterprise uh, and, um, uh, and uh, figure out bridges to get them involved uh, as the capital providers uh, into the, um, in, in, you know, into something like the platform economy. So I, I think to me the challenge is not uh, that you that you need to re-educate the, the tech investors. Um, the challenge is is to figure out a package so that you can kind of get the tech investors out of the way uh, and and um, shift some of this stuff over to models that are. Um, uh, that are more kind of naturally patient, and and to recognize that as with that that sector of electric cooperatives, right, when the need arose, the financing mechanisms arose as well. And uh, I have a great deal of confidence in that. You know, as we start proving some of these these models in certain cases, you know, the financing will emerge. We start we've already started to see companies like uh, 
you know, uh, uh, financers like um, uh, Purpose Capital start to emerge that are expressly designed for supporting platform co-op like uh, tech businesses. Um, you know, I think once the vi as the viable businesses emerge, uh, you know, so will the larger scale capital. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, Nathan, in principle. We have seen a few instances where what was needed was precisely that aligned capital that could uh, uh, be used to clean up the cap table and displace traditional uh, early-stage tech investors that were no longer in sync with the, with the aspirations of the, of the company. And uh, in some cases, it was hard to find the capital. In some cases, it was still hard to find the capital and the correct structure that the investors could wrap their head around. And that would make sense in terms of getting the uh, the tech investors out and and kind of have a a, a fresh start for the for the company. Um, there is a I'm, uh, I'm sorry that we went a little bit over the hour and a half, but clearly there's a lot of interest in this uh, in this area. Um, one last thing that came up um, from from your mentions and uh, kind of reconciling this uh, with this piece of changing the investor mentality is this idea uh, of considering tech platforms as a public utility. And we've had a conversation around uh, the role of banks uh, and how banks, uh, especially at the regional level, such as New Resource Bank and uh, uh, Beneficial State Bank that presented recently, really view their role as a utility. And I was wondering, Nathan or Jason, if you can uh, uh, quickly comment on that, on how you are looking at this kind of public utility role for a, for a platform. Maybe I'll take first stab because I want to draw a distinction in the discussion between the utility model, which I think really relates to scale technology and the emergence of, of, of models that have been successful at monetizing, aggregating, monetizing, manipula manipulating data, um, and have actually kind of, as a sign of maturation, uh, become primary buyers in the tech space with those of the early fledgling stage uh, tech ventures that we're seeing. So I think we need to draw a distinction between on the spectrum of growth uh, um, and, the, and the various instruments and strategies that we deploy. Um, I won't say much, I'll leave it to Nathan to talk about technology and utility design. Um, but for me, the real interest in this discussion is to avoid such a concentration in the first place I think early philosophy of the internet involved a high degree of democratization and access. And I think that relies on an open access to the basic underlying structure of the internet and, and, and requires there to be a healthy biodynamic ecosystem of technology in the marketplace. So I don't know that um, this discussion needs to relate. It can, and, and certainly it's interesting to relate it to scale, but it's more interesting to me to see instances of traditional technology grown to a scale that has that maximizes use value, not transaction value, and manifests its ultimate kind of parked uh, structure, as I think Brendan called it, using a, a user-owned model. I mean, I see that most applicable in the small to kind of early growth stage of a company before it ever becomes um, a, a fish that's about to get gobbled up by a shark. Yeah. Well, let me clarify, um, Jason, um, in, in that comment about public utility, I was uh, hinting at something that perhaps 
you know, lawyer to lawyer, we can uh, we can say is more um, along the lines of a common carrier type of uh, type of idea, right? Is there a duty that accrues to certain tech platforms, very much by virtue of the kind of uh, public facing uh, and uh, service that they that they would provide? So less on the less on the scale and more on this uh, intrinsic common carrier type of role that they might be that they might be playing. Well, I, I think I think that's a relevant question, and and um, uh, it's something that that you know could come up. I think especially as this sector matures in some serious ways. You know, it's striking to see, for instance, uh, a, an op-ed in the New York Times over the weekend uh, uh, arguing for breaking up Google, um, uh, uh, and there there's a kind of insurgency in in uh, Washington going on right now around trying to uh, uh, kind of rejuvenate some. Uh, some antitrust principles that you know this is something in the common carrier conversation that we're seeing too with the with the broadband providers and the FCC's discussion it it may be that that some of these companies might find themselves in a regulatory situation both in the US and and around the world where um, where where regulators start perceiving them in this way and they have um, uh, uh, they, they find themselves facing a, a patchwork of regulations that could become quite expensive. And, uh, you know, historically there are some examples such as electric cooperatives where cooperative uh, uh, organize, uh, you know, business models have been a way of bypassing that kind of regulation uh, uh, through a rationale of self-regulation. And, uh, you know, that, that I think is, is, you know, it's a case that we're not making now because it's not a reality right now. Um, these, these, uh, monopolies are not being treated as such um, uh, in the U.S., uh, though, though that's uh, less the case in Europe. Um, but it may be that there's uh, even more incentive in the future uh, for, uh, for these kinds of cooperative models as, a, uh, as an alternative to a very costly patchwork of, of regulation. Great. Thank you very much. I think we'll need to close now. Um, and thanks for, to everybody for attending. And if you're interested in uh, hearing more about the work of uh, the Transform Finance Investor Network, you can contact me. It's Andrea, A-N-D-R-E-A, at transformfinance.org. Um, and uh, if you want to get in touch with Nathan uh, or Jason, their emails are here. If you're calling us on the phone, it's nathan.schneider at colorado.edu and jason at jrweiner, that's w-i-e-n-e-r uh, dot com. Um, thank you, Jason. Thanks, Nathan, for joining us. Clearly, there's a lot of interest in this, and uh, I look forward to being in touch. I saw that there are some comments from uh, some of our investor members uh, that we can pass on to you offline as well on the models themselves. Thanks to you and everybody for joining in today. Terrific. See you next time.